Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Pomero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. It is Thursday, June 27th, 2013, 10 p.m. in the east, 7 p.m. out west, and I am thrilled to be back here with you and doubly thrilled to be able to present my dynamite guest tonight. You know, regular listeners of this show know and know well my unyielding devotion to the extraordinary Linda Dano, who has graced this program a handful of times across the four years of its existence and who has become a great friend of Brandon's Buzz in general. You know, any friend of Linda's is a friend of mine, no question about it, and I am ecstatic to reveal to you that this show's circle of friends has officially expanded by one this evening, courtesy of the astonishingly brilliant Alicia Coppola, whose ferocious work you may know from, well, I suppose it depends on your television viewing habits, how you'll recognize her. If you've watched even an hour of primetime television in the last two decades, you'll almost certainly be able to place her face, as she has guest starred on just about every show known to man, from Dawson's Creek to Two and a Half Men. Uh, a small but devoted cadre of fans surely still adores her from her regular role on CBS's cult hit Jericho. And, of course, a whole generation of us crazy, crazy soap fans will forever adore her for her dazzling, dynamic three-year stint on NBC's late-lamented classic Another World as the aforementioned Miss Dano's long-lost daughter, Lorna Devon, arguably the most badass chick on daytime who hit Bay City with the force of a hydrogen bomb. I guarantee to you people, if you ever saw her work on that show, you never forgot it. And long before gals like Sarah Brown, Tamara Braun, uh, Laura Wright, Sarah Michelle Gellar, long before gals like that showed up on the scene, Miss Alicia very much helped set forth the template on how to give life to the edgy bad girl that you love to hate and that you grow to love. Uh, not as well known as her fierce work is her tough personal story. When she was 21 years old, Alicia lost her father after his decade-long battle with brain cancer, a life-altering fight which she chronicles in her wrenching, potent new book, Gracefully Gone, which, in a fascinating twist on the typical love-and-loss memoir, splices together her father's journal from around the time of his original diagnosis with her diary from the final months of his life. The juxtaposition between the two journals and the ways in which the book's two points of view haunt and inform each other, wholly in spite of the fact that each side of the story unfolds a full decade removed from the other, is by turns stark and stunning. Uh, this is a tough read, to be sure, and you'll likely find yourself needing to walk away from it from time to time. Uh, but hear me when I tell you this is as compelling and as acutely observed a treatise on the incredible fragility of life and the redemptive power of love 
as you're likely to ever run across. Having lost both of my own parents at a very young age, I instantly felt a point of connection with this woman, and I was thrilled and, truth be told, more than a bit nervous when Alicia agreed to pop in here for a frank discussion about hopping a rocket ship to another world, all the while fighting like hell to navigate and manage this world with as much grace as the dark demons of her own pain and anger would allow. I'm glad that you did. So here we are. So, so for those who aren't aware of your story and of the general thrust of Gracefully Gone, which we're talking about here, uh, nutshell it for us. What, what are we dealing with here? When I was 12 years old in Huntington, Long Island, my father was diagnosed with brain cancer. He kept a journal from 1980, his diagnosis through to his remission in 1983. I believed he kept it, what's the word, not retroactively, but what's that word that I'm looking for? Uh, well, in any event, it'll, it'll come to me, uh, retrospectively. Okay. So I then was at prep school at Kent, and then I went to NYU. And upon my graduation in 1990, I came home to take care of my dad as he began to die. And I kept a journal from 1990 through to 1991, capturing the six months that I took care of him. Upon his death, my mother gave me his writings. And about a couple of months after he died, uh, actually in April of 91, I got Lorna Devon on Another World. So that kept me pretty busy for a good, you know, two, two and three quarter years. After I left Another World was when I began and sat down at my desk and said, okay, I'm going to try and put these two journals together. And it has taken me 22 years. But finally, I was a, I know, I, I, you know, I'm like a slug. Um, I finally put them together. And Gracefully Gone is, is the result of that. And were you always aware that your father was keeping a journal, or was this something that you stumbled no. upon? No, I did not know. I didn't know that he kept this journal or that he was writing anything, for that matter. My mother gave me his writings after he died. I can imagine it was quite a revelation for you to go back and see it through his eyes, what he was going through when he first got the diagnosis and, you know, all through the all through the initial battle. I can imagine it was quite a quite an eye-opening experience for you to go back and, and read these words. Well, you know, it's interesting. You're the first person who's actually asked me that. I think, honestly, Brandon, that I was so consumed with my own anger and grief and i got to say I was a kind of a bitter, can I say the B word? Bitch, sure. Yes, bitchy, yeah, sure. nasty, mid-20s <laughs> girl that I don't even know that I really understood what I was seeing for the first couple of times that I read his work. I wasn't really sure because I had lived it. Of course. It wasn't until just recently that I began to seriously put it together when I woke up, you know, a couple of years ago and said, okay, now let me get a real format. And then four months ago saying, okay, now I'm really going to, I'm going to do this myself. That was when I really felt the impact of my father's words. And I think because I was far enough away that sometimes I forget what he looks like or what he sounded like or what he smelled like. But putting the book together and publishing it, all of those things came back to me. And I think for the first time now, being a parent myself, I was able to look at it in a completely different way and see what he was going through not only as my father but as a man, as a husband and as a, as a father himself. So it was really interesting because in the beginning I was just pissed off. And now 
I was and why like, wouldn't you be? I mean, that was completely justifiable. Yeah. I mean, you would, in a strange way, you had been robbed entirely of your teenage years. I say in my book, I became ageless and old at 12 years old. Absolutely. I don't have much recollection of that time. I was sent off to boarding school, and then, of course, I went to NYU. So I was pretty much out of the house by 14. And I don't, I always remembered living under this shadow of my father being gone, not dead yet, but gone. He was just not present. So, so yeah, I think I, I was angry. I was pissed off. I was just, you know, I was like the girl in the John Cusack long coat listening to The Cure and, you know, tears for fears and sure. davening in a quarter. So between between 83 and 90, was your father constantly constantly battling and constantly sick, or, or was he in remission no. for a while and then it, it came back he, with a vengeance? He was in remission for a while. He uh, would have vocal seizures and grand mal seizures. Um, and he was medicated throughout those years. In 1988, I believe, is when he started to feel this thing he called the condom thing on his right side, where he like could touch something, but only by looking at it would he know what he was touching. He just had numbness. And that eventually took over his entire right side, and that's when I think that they knew that something was going on. It's interesting because I have just recently spoke to my father's initial neurologist, because it's amazing the people that I have come in contact with since publishing Gracefully Gone, all his doctors and people from my past that I haven't thought of or, you know, even known about. So he said to me, the radiation that your father underwent for the initial tumor is what got rid of that tumor. Goodbye, I love you. Have a great day. I'll see you later, honey. But it also probably was what caused the lymphoma because radiation can cause lymphoma. So it's like, so you mean to tell me had my father not had radiation, then the lymphoma might not have come back to him? And he was like, well, yeah, I was like, ooh, perhaps that's something you might want to keep quiet because it makes me wonder, well, gee, maybe if he had chemo and not radiation, maybe he'd still be alive. But, you know, I think that's another thing about Gracefully Gone is it's a whole lot of shoulda, coulda, woulda. And you know, you, say you, that, you, that if he had had chemo, something else wouldn't have, I mean, you know, you can't really... You can play that game both ways. So. Oh, and don't we always? I mean, I I, I play games with myself all the time. <laughs> Excuse me, do you see mommy's on the phone? Yes. Can I'm sorry, Brandon. Your pocket costume? Your pumpkin costume. I don't know where it is right now. All right, have have Lala get it, please. Thank you so much. Bye bye. <gasps> I mean, I t- does this look like I'm holding a hot dog on my ear? Is a chicken breast? It's a telephone. Oh, my God. That's why I drink. I swear to God. <laughs> so, you know, I don't I don't mean this in a crass way, but but uh, did your mother I have some sort of... I think we're beyond crass. <laughs> did your mother have some sort of agenda when she gave you his his, his journals or his writings, or or did she just no. feel like you were the no, person no, no. to have them? I don't even think she thought anything of it. I think she's just like, you know, he, this is your dad wrote this, if you want to read it. I don't think there was anything other than, here, would you like to read what your father... Maybe we were talking about it. Maybe we were talking about, you know, honestly, I don't remember how it came up. I just knew that they were placed in my hands. And, you know, it kind of sounds like it was always sort of clear to you that each of your journals was haunted by the other in some odd, fascinating way. I mean, was it always clear or did it slowly occur to you that, that it might be interesting to juxtapose these two against the other? It didn't occur to me until I realized what was interesting is that we were actually speaking a decade apart during the same time of the year. 
And I felt it was interesting when I saw the things that I was talking about and saw them mirrored when my father was speaking about his initial illness. And so I saw the hope that he had and also the depression and the deep desire to get better, not only obviously for himself, but to be able to be there for my mother and for my brother and I. And then to see it mirrored back 10 years later, especially over the holidays, because in 1980, my father talks about the holidays. And then in 1990, I talk about the holidays. And it was just very interesting to me to see the juxtaposition of the two journals. And it was then that I realized, you know, this is kind of interesting because I don't know that this has ever been done before. There have been books about in any myriad way of partnering, you know, a child has been lost, a parent has been lost, a sister, a grandmother, you know, every familial way of loss has been discovered and developed in books. But and you think about books I like think, The Last Lecture or you think about Tuesdays with Maury or, you know, these kinds exactly, of books. Tuesdays yeah. with, exactly, exactly. The Last Lecture, Tuesdays with Maury. You think about Carol Burnett just wrote a book right now. Absolutely. There's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who writes about grieving. I mean, I think that we have delved into this subject deeply. But the one thing that I found that was not there was an actual dialogue between a parent and a child. I have often equated it to Nat King Cole and Natalie Cole's <laughs> duet Absolutely. that she laid a track on to Unforgettable. That's what I think is unique, is that you see both parent and child going through it and parent and child going through it during a 10-year span. Because I was 12, and now I'm 21. My father was 38, and now he's 48. And that's something that I don't think that has been done before. Very interesting. You know, uh, thumbing through the book, I get the distinct feeling that you very much still needed some closure in whatever form that would take in your life, on this chapter in your life. And, you know, even though it was more than 20 years ago, I mean, do you feel like you have been able to find that completion throughout this process, or do you see yourself struggling with this in some form or fashion for the rest of your life? I mean, do do you – what did you need to accomplish doing this book, and do you think you did? That's a good one. I don't think my father's illness and my father's death is something that I will ever forget or, you know, get over. But I do feel that I have nothing more to say about it. I do feel that I have explored every feeling that there is to feel. And I feel that that is something that has informed who I am It's written on me like a tattoo, so it will always be there, but it does not define who I am anymore. It used to. I'd had ample opportunity to write Gracefully Gone throughout the years. I mean, I wasn't always knocked up or I wasn't always on set. I mean, there were times when I, you know, did the dishes and sat down and said, okay, what do I do now? But clearly, there was a reason why It took me this long, and I did it, and I published it when I did. I remember a girlfriend of mine, Diane, looking through it with me when I was pregnant with Mila. And I had it all ready to go. But you know what? I wasn't done yet. And then I had Esme. And clearly, I still wasn't done yet. And then having Greta, I think three years after having Greta, I finally said, you know what, that chapter of my life is done. 
and not having children anymore. Dear God, I hope. <laughs> I have three. That's enough. And I love them. And I was ready to close that chapter, and I think that was why I was like, huh, why don't we close this chapter too? So I think I was just ready to kind of move on to, you know, yeah, to another chapter, pun intended. Sure. So in answer to your question, yes, I remember. Yes, I still feel. Yes, it's there. But it's not in the forefront of my mind anymore. I had a father, obviously. I adored him. He adored me. He was very important to me, and he died. As Esme, my middle child, she'll say, hey, Ma, your dad's the one that's dead, right? I mean, she's incredibly matter-of-fact. I said, yes, Esme, my dad is the one who's dead. <laughs> okay. And isn't it funny so, how kids deal with, with, with simple truths? I mean, isn't it, you know, it's it's so funny. You know, we adults bring such complicated emotion to everything, and, and kids just deal with it straightforwardly and matter-of-fact and, you know, move on to eating some ice cream. Yeah, they absorb it, and then they release it. They don't hold on to it. Whereas we do hold on to it. But unfortunately, that changes because they don't know. They don't know any different. In a sense, their idea of time, it's kind of like a dog. Like if you leave to go to work and then you come back, it's like the dog hasn't seen you in a year and a half. Well, that's the way children are. They only know that they love you, they miss you, they're hungry, they have to go potty. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> and the rest they discard of. They travel light. Kids travel light. <laughs> You mentioned your three girls. The idea of becoming a parent yourself, given what you went through with your own parents and your own family, uh, were you at all hesitant to uh, kind of open up that Pandora's box, if you will, or oh, did yeah, you always want to be a mother to... and always want to have kids? No, no. I didn't want children at all. Wow. I had no interest in it. I oh, really fun. didn't. This is what I wanted. I wanted to be like Felicia Gallant. <laughs> I wanted to wear, like, I wanted to have this, fabulous penthouse in New York City and like have all these beautiful jewels and handbags and gorgeous and the clothes and, the and shoes. Yes, I wanted all of it. <laughs> I wanted a driver. I wanted red carpets to unfurl whenever my Manolo or Jimmy Choo foot hit pavement. I wanted to be, you know, maybe single or have a bunch of lovers and just live this fabulous millennium girl lifestyle. That is fantastic. <laughs> That's what I thought that I wanted, right? <laughs> okay, so cut to now. Something I live changed, in Studio clearly. City. Things have changed. I don't have any turbans. I am a soccer Sherpa. I drive a big honking truck filled with soccer great. shit. How great. It's wonderful. And I know, but in all seriousness, I did. I never wanted children. It was something I really just wasn't interested in until I met my husband. And he's one of six. He's the wow. baby. And so family was very important to him. Of so I was like, okay, well, I wanted to have, I think, a baby more for him than for me because it was very important to him. And so we had Mila. And she, I just fell in love with her. I just thought that she was the neatest thing in the world. And I didn't know, it was like all that time, because I had her a little bit later in life when all my, well, I don't have a lot of friends, but the friends that I had, they were all having children. And I just thought she was really interesting. Then we waited a little bit and then we tried to have a second one, but that didn't work out very well. And so we had to do two rounds of in vitro to have Miss Esme. And that was very, I mean, I enjoyed the process. I had a really good time doing it because 
I don't know. I I I just I wanted her so badly that there was nothing that I wouldn't endure in order to know that at the end of it I was going to come out having a baby. And so we finally got our Esme, and that was the most wonderful thing in the world. And I remember the doctor telling me, well, we're not going to bother tying your tubes because the chances of you getting pregnant again are like, you know, getting hit by lightning because apparently I was as barren as the Mojave Desert. Well, (laughs) famous last words. Five months later, as I'm nursing Esme, she turns her head from me and, like, spits that out. She's like, ugh, disgusting. Turns out I was pregnant with Greta. Wow. And I don't know, Brandon, how that happened. I think my husband peed on the toilet seat and I sat <laughs> on it because the baby was only like four and a half months old or something. So I was like, when was I, was my vagina there? Did I leave? <laughs> Where I don't recall any of this. <laughs> and now we have Greta. So now we have Mila, who is 10, Esme, who's four and a half, and Miss Greta, who is three and a half. And it all happened while I wasn't looking. Wow. Isn't it funny? You know, but that's life. Yeah, sure. What's the saying? It's it's uh, life is what happens when, when you're making other plans. Exactly. <laughs> so I was making other plans to be fabulous with a turban and boas. And now instead, I and am. And now you're in, a fabulous mother, no doubt. And now I'm a fabulous mother and wife and actress and now author. And, I mean, everything that I thought of 20 years ago that I thought that I wanted some of I have, but everything that I never even knew that you could want, I have. And for that, I'm so appreciative and grateful. I have a happy marriage. I have three healthy children. My husband and I, knock on wood, are, well, that was plaster. I better hit wood. One, two, three. <laughs> are healthy. And that is the one thing that I have carried with me, and it is a lesson that I have learned, that things come and go. Money comes and goes. Jobs come and go. It's all pretty much it's important because it's what feeds us and it gives us purpose and it's what provides a home and means of transportation, but it is not what defines us and it is not at the end of the day what is important. And I know that's cliche, but it's not. And so every so often that lesson, it's almost like when I begin to forget it, when it gets shoved under everything else that's going on in life, something will pop up to remind me you're thinking about the wrong thing. You're losing perspective. It's kind of like, you know, my father comes and bites me in the ass. Sure. Because remember, remember what's important. And I think that that, you know, in, in the end of Gracefully Gone, I think that that's what people will see, is that I have tried to just hold it together. I think I did an okay job. And I think my dad would be proud. I love at the end of the book how you how you talk about how uh, I don't have the exact verbiage here, but you're convinced that your father in some funny way sent you these three girls, maybe in a small way to teach you about, you know, the heartbeats and the giggles and the laughter and the ice cream and mm-hmm. the messes and, you know, all the all the great joys of motherhood and all the great joys of life and, and you know, to teach you to slow down and pay attention to those small moments because in those small moments, that's where life happens. It's true. I think you said that beautifully. I couldn't have, but damn it, where were you a couple <laughs> months ago when I was rewriting the end? That's exactly it, because I think that that's why they are here. I think they're here to teach me that. I remember, and I talk about it in my book, Mila was, I think she's about three years old, and every so often I sigh. I don't know why. It's getting less. Now I just scream out loud. But then I would, you know, sigh, and I remember her 
saying from the back, Mama, you'll be okay. It'll all be okay. And I'll never forget that. My girls, they have given me, they have given me the opportunity to give of myself and not have everything be so damn important. You know, it's like, oh, I didn't get a job yesterday. Oh, okay, well, it's not the first time I didn't get a job. <laughs> you know, somebody said no to me. Somebody rejected me. Somebody said I'm too tall or I'm too this or I'm too, you know. But to them, I'm just perfect. And so I think my dad did give me them for that reason, amongst others, to torture me too. But, <laughs> you know, he was just like, no, you're not getting out of this. You know, <laughs> I'm going to give you exactly what you and your brother did to me. <laughs> You know, you mentioned uh, uh, Phyllis Galan, and you mentioned your old pal Linda Dano a couple of times later in the book. I have to tell you, she's been a great friend of this program over the years. She's been a guest on this show six times over the past four years, and she pops in she's once amazing. or twice a year, usually whenever she's about to head back to QVC with her home decor collection. Yep. And, you know, we always have a great chat about soaps and life and beauty. And, and you know, she's one of those people about whom you you just never hear a crossword uttered. And, and I, I think it's so heartening to know that you two have remained close and that it wasn't just all for the cameras, that relationship. Oh, God, no. No. In fact, I don't think it was ever for the cameras. I don't think that the cameras were relevant at all. The minute I met her, and I think the minute she met me, I was not cast to be her daughter, which is interesting. That happened a couple of months after I was working. Wow. And I think that it was just so obvious. And just, it was like, well, of course. Because when I came on the show, I was just going to be, you know, the music girl for Dean and Matt. What was it? Frame music. But that's what I came on for and to work with Carl. And so that happened afterward. Because, again, I think that they saw the connection that we had. And Linda is still my mama. And my children call her grandma. And she and Anthony are very, very close. She, I believe, took off raising me, as I say in my book, when my own mother couldn't anymore because she was just so grief-stricken. And Linda took over that role without ever being asked. It was just something that she did. She just guided me. And she still does to this day. If there's It sounds like you just instantly or, gravitated to her. I instantly gravitated toward her. Whether she really liked it or not, <laughs> I became I became the daughter she never wanted. So... But I think she does want me, and I think she loves me and our family. You know, she is my family. She definitely is. She means everything to me, and she's given me so much. You know, I don't want to bombard you with questions about your soap past and, you know, rouse those oh, no, go ahead. past. But, but, you know, I get the sense from having read various interviews with you over the years and, you know, having seen you on various other shows that Lorna Devon, that that job uh, coming into your life when it did and where it did was a complete godsend for you. Oh, my gosh. You know... Every so often, I forget that everything happens for a reason. Because, you know, I'm logical, I'm smart, and I like for there to be order, and I like to control things, and I like to know why. Well, why? Why, why, why? Well, sometimes there is no why, and you'll find out later on. Somebody said to me the other day, the most complex themes in life you'll find out after the fact. You may not know what's going on whilst you're in it, but it's after, in hindsight, that you look back and you go, oh, well, of course that happened that way. Well, I remember going in to my audition. And again, like I told you, I was angry. I was bitter. I had just lost my father a couple of months prior. I was really not fit for a human population. I really wasn't. 
And I remember, I think I said to the, the, the assistant or the associate, how long is this going to be? I'm from New York, and I'm not the most patient gal, and I can have a tone, and I don't think I meant to, but I think it came off very <laughs> brusque. So when I got the job, I remember, bless his heart, Michael Lapson said to me, are you an asshole, or are you, like, a good person? Because we don't want the other here. And I was like, no, I'm really... I'm actually really lovely, but here's my, I, this is what I've just been through. So I'm a little bit of a mess. Wow. And it was like, perfect. <laughs> then they wrote the whole, you know, Lucas dying thing. Sure. I mean, sure. come on. I, so that job came to me at the most pivotal point in my life. Had it happened earlier, it wouldn't have meant anything. And had it happened later, it wouldn't have meant anything. Morna was what Lorna was because of where I was in my life. So I wasn't playing Morna. I was just me with somebody else's name. And you know, I'm going to guess that I'm going to guess that having survived what you did fed you as an actress in a real way. I mean, it it, it gave you some tangible cogent uh experience to draw on in terms of sense memory and, you know, all that actory stuff. Well, you know, it's interesting. I don't understand that actory stuff. I mean, I, I understand it intellectually, but it's never something that I have understood in my being. My acting method is called Nike, which is just do it. <laughs> I love it. I just walk love into it. this situation. Linda always said to me, oh, I buy anything. I'll buy anything. doesn't matter to me. I'll buy the craziest things in the world. I can totally believe that. And... I think that's where I kind of learned it. I Or not learned it, but accepted that that's just the kind of actor that I am. Wow. I just, I have no tricks. I don't know that I have any tools. I just go and I do it. Having said that, I do believe that, again, my father's illness, my experience taking care of him as he died, and ultimately his death, and my finding my way through that murkiness informed me and it has deepened the person that I am. So throughout our lives as people, there are things that are going to tattoo us. And so therefore, a role that I'm going to play, like yesterday I went to go play a role of a mom. I am a mother. (laughs) So when I say being a parent is one of the scariest things you can do in a scene, I have something to back that up with because I know it is the scariest thing that I've ever done. So I don't need a trick or a tool sure. to help me say that line. I just need to say the damn line because it's already in me, because it's what I am. Do you see what I mean? Does that it's make fantastic. sense? It makes perfect sense. Sometimes I say things and I don't know <laughs> if they make sense to anybody no, but it makes, me. It makes beautiful sense. It really does. And, you know, I mean, I... You know, I, I, I'm a great fan of that show, Inside the Actor's Studio, but sometimes it gets a little Oh, I love Inside the Actor's Yeah. You, you know, when they're talking about you know, having having a toolbox and, you know, sense memory and the method and, you know, all the all the actory hoo-ha stuff. And, and I, I love hearing you speak about it from, from the other direction entirely. Well, you know, I did all that stuff. I went, I remember hearing about, I think it was Catherine Hepburn, who went to the actor's studio. And I remember her, I think the story goes, she left saying, well, I don't know about you people, but I'm going to go be a movie star now. <laughs> and... I remember being in sense memory class, and they were doing private moments. Do you know this stuff? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Are you not aware of this? really, no. I mean, not intimately. Okay. 
Well, there's stuff that you do. Like you sit in a chair and then you do these relaxations. And then the teacher walks around and she's, you know, she flips your arms up and down. You're supposed to like, I don't know, make noises. I don't know what you're supposed to do. And then you're supposed to like actually do the sense memory where you like feel the coffee cup and you smell the coffee or you taste the coffee. I have no idea. (laughs) And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't feel this coffee cup. And I don't. I don't smell it. And when, for the love of sweet baby Jesus lying in his manger, am I ever going to be asked on a set to have an imaginary coffee cup? <laughs> Why are we doing this? It and I love that even then you had the presence of mind to know that. I just did not understand why I would have to pretend with a coffee cup. So then I had another class. When they're doing these things called the private moment, I was like, okay, so they're supposed to, I guess the idea is that you can create privacy so that you could be your character without any exterior influence. And I'm looking around like in while I'm supposed to be relaxing and smelling my coffee and I open one eye and there's this like woman masturbating in the corner. <laughs> like you've got to be flipping kidding me. That's it. That is it. And if I'm ever going to do that, you better be paying me. You better back up the money truck. And then I don't need any privacy. I'll do it out on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 24th Street. I don't give a crap. But I'm not going to sit here in a room full of people smelling imaginary coffee cups while I masturbate. The most ridiculous pile of crap. Just say the words. And I don't know. Believe it a little. How fantastic. So if I were on Actor Studio, that would be my story. (laughs) Which is probably why I haven't been asked. It would be a very, very, very short hour. You know, I I have to tell you something. The famous intervention episode of Another World, you know, I've told Linda on this very program that I think that was her absolute finest hour as a dramatic actress. I mean, I think that, you know, in terms of daytime dramatic acting work, I'd maybe put that performance in the top four or five that I've ever seen. Yeah. And, you know, I, I pulled up those scenes yesterday on YouTube to, uh, you know, watch them just as I was preparing for this conversation. And, you know, the great surprise to me, and it shouldn't have been a surprise because I've seen those scenes a hundred times. I've seen that episode a hundred times. But, you know, the great surprise to me yesterday watching all of you, not just watching Linda, was that all three of you, Vicki Wyndham, Schnetzer, and you, you were all right there with her. You, you know, you were taking what she gave you to work with and giving it right back to her, just like ping pong, just like tennis. And, you mm-hmm. know... I've never heard you talk specifically about that day and about that work. Do you have any memory at all of being, you know, on that set that day and working through those scenes? I don't have a specific memory, but I can say that the memories that I do have of working with Linda, like when she slapped me or the rape scenes, the trial scenes. Sure. Uh, the scene right before I have a very distinct memory of when I'm calling her a drunk and I come into her apartment. I remember it now as you ask me, and then when we did it, thinking that it was, that not only was it important, but that I think Linda and I kind of explored things that maybe we weren't even aware was there. I think we both had pain, and I think it was coming out as Lorna and Felicia, but Linda and Alicia were experiencing this. And I think that those scenes, the intervention scenes, 
were some of the more powerful because I think, first of all, when you're working with really great actors and actresses, it's very, it's it, you know, your game raises. So when you say ping pong or tennis, yeah, you're only as good as your partner is. Of course, sure. So I think we were all just really present. We were just all very present and very there and just speaking and exploring and playing. And that's easy to do when you're surrounded by talent, as those people clearly were and are. But I love working with Linda. Every, you know, Connie Ford, Linda, Charles Keating, Ricky, all very, very giving actors. And I miss those days. They were a lot of fun. They really were a lot of fun. I learned a lot there. I learned how to trust myself. And I learned to just listen and to just be, which is why I'm telling you that, you know, if you're working with really great people and you can just let yourself, maybe maybe the whole relaxation thing where you make noise and you flop your arms around, maybe there is some reason for that. If you can just be grounded and just breathe a second, wonderful things happen. And I think that that's what happened with those intervention scenes. You know, I tell you, it was so stunning because Felicia was always such a madcap uh, over-the-top character, and and all of a sudden they gave her this super dramatic, super intense work, and and uh, boy, Linda rose to the occasion. Like I don't know, I mean, I don't know how many people expected her to be able to carry off stuff like that, but boy, did she ever! Linda is, yeah, no, Linda's a phenomenal actress, and again, Linda, I I don't even know, Linda just feels she does not overthink things. She just, it's own, and I think this is where I learned it because I remember Linda could read a script and know the lines within a minute. Wow. And I remember looking at her, and I do the same thing, and people often ask me, how do you do that? And I say because I almost like take a picture with my heart. I absorb it. And that's, I think I learned it from Linda. I think she absorbs material, and then it sits with her inside of her body, and then it simply, she becomes it. Linda's amazing. Linda is a never-ending well of surprise and emotion and passion and ideas. She's just a surprise. Every time I talk to her, I learn something new. <laughs> you know, I feel the exact same way. I don't even know her, but I feel like I do because, you know, as I said, she's been here six or seven times. We've had great conversations. Uh, you know, I, I feel like we're lifelong friends even though we've never laid eyes on each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the way Linda is, and truly it is, and you are lifelong friends. Once she loves you, she loves you. <laughs> you know, she's just amazing. I'm very lucky to have her in my life and very lucky that my girls have her, not to mention the great outfits that she always picks out for them. <laughs> she gets the best. Every Christmas they look forward to like, what did Grandma Linda send us? How great. Yes. You know, I, so, I'm a writer myself, and I hate getting questions like this. You know, I, I hate being asked what something I'm writing is about. You know, it just makes me cringe. So uh, you can answer this any way you want to, but is there a specific uh, takeaway that you want your readers to hold when they get to the end of, of your book? I mean, what do you want us to walk away from Grace Gilligan carrying? Grace, I just want people to walk away from it, to put the book down and see that cancer Illness, disease, dying, death, it's something that we're all going to face. It's a dialogue that we should be having, especially with children. I mean, age-appropriate, of course, which is what I thought was so wonderful that Angelina Jolie just, um, and I don't know the woman, but I thought it was wonderful when she said that she told her children, of course, she will die one day, because we all do, but breast cancer, she will not be taken from them 
because of breast cancer. Wow. And she had the conversation with her children. Her children were aware. Of course, the conversation was age-appropriate. But I would like people to walk away from Gracefully Gone and know that, A, they're not alone, B, to maybe know how to have a dialogue, to be able to talk to your kids about it, to be there for other children as well. And one of the biggest things that I want people to walk away from, and this is really important to me, and it may not even make sense to you, but I have often felt in life that we are responsible for everybody that we encounter. And I have always felt that it's really important to greet everybody with a smile and a kind word. Because at the end of the day, you do not know what that person is coming from or going home to. And I don't want to be the person who somebody said, God, that girl was nasty, and then go home to a parent who's dying or a child who's dying or a spouse who's dying. People didn't know what was going on in my house. And I think that you don't know what is going on in somebody else's life and your smile could really mean a lot to somebody. And I know it sounds cliche and it may even sound silly, but there were times in my childhood that a hug would have gone a really long flipping way. <laughs> sure. So, you know, I, 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 I know it's difficult to judge one set of circumstances against another because, you know, we only have to work with the prism of our own experiences from which to judge how we see things. And, you know, I know that... Uh, this is an odd question and maybe even an awful and unanswerable one, but what does death mean to you now, having survived the experiences that you have survived? I mean, do you do you, uh, do you fear death at all? Do you feel differently about death uh, than you might have had you not had to go through what you did? Is that an awful question? Why can't we talk about lip gloss? <laughs> Good God. <laughs> Um, I don't know. What do you think? You know, I, it's so funny to me because I, 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 I was watching Cicely Tyson on the Tonys a couple weekends ago, and you know, she was talking about how she is the only surviving member of her immediate family, and that wow. really struck a chord with me because, I mean, I have a half sister, so I guess that counts. But uh, in terms of you know immediate blood relatives, I've lost both of my parents. I've lost all four of my grandparents. Uh. I lost my best friend from high school the year after we graduated. I lost Jesus. an uncle he recently really... that I was very close to. I mean, he was like a surrogate father to me after my own father passed. So, you know, it's it's so funny. And, and you know, I, I think that I kind of figured out early that, you know, I mean, you can either shut it down and, you know – Make your make your life some living, walking, you know, uh, uh, moratorium, or you can just get on with it. And and you know, I I really do understand that you know life goes on, and you have to appreciate what you have in the moment that you have it, because you might not have it the next moment. And you know, I just wonder, you know, I, I you know, I've been to so many funerals, and I've seen so many people carrying on, and you know, just. I've seen so many people that I love just kind of shut down pieces of their heart and pieces of their lives just to, you know, grieve forever and I don't think that's I don't see the benefit of that. I don't see the the health in that and and you know, I just wonder how you see things too. I wonder how you see death. Having read, you know, a a, a piece of your story and having, you know, uh 
spend an hour talking to you on the phone and and you know like I said I feel such a point of connection with you because in some funny way your story is mine and mine is yours and I just wonder how yeah. you see things having survived what you have. I'll tell you this I completely agree with you about the carrying on. What is your heritage, Brandon? Uh, you know it's funny my dad's side of the family is Cherokee Indian so I mean we are very stoic very forward-looking okay. people don't look back don't you know. And just what was your keep mom? moving forward, and so it's 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 funny that it's very much in my bloodline. And it's very much in my mind that you know, uh, no matter what, you open your eyes, you put one foot in front of the other, and you keep marching. Right. Okay. Well, I'm Italian, all on my father's side, so you know the Italians. They don't pass up a good morning, <laughs> a good a good grieving, a good flinging themselves on a casket. Okay. <laughs> Nobody passes that up. Wearing the black and the clutching of the the breast and the beating no of the breast doubt about it. and the shredding of you know handkerchiefs. There nobody passes a good day up of that. On my mother's side is the German, Australian, Spanish, and a little bit of black in there. So she's a little confused. So she's part <laughs> stoic and then the other part like wants to beat her breast, but is guilty about doing it. So she's just like in between. Having said that, I've seen my share of that, and that does not appeal to me. Also, what does not appeal to me is wearing one's grief like a badge. I'm not interested in it. I don't like it. Uh, I think it's time to turn the page. You know, it's like uh, one of the, I think one of the things that my mom and I have often clashed on, because after my father died, she remarried and he died, my stepfather, six years later. Mm. And so my mother, you know, walked around in this shroud of gloom, and, yeah, I understand. It's painful. And I hope I never know an eighth of what she's forgotten. You know what I mean? Sure. But and there a, comes a, a, time a, a funny part of her must have thought of, she was cursed or something. Well, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And now I think she's she's completely, you know, she's great and she, she's built this incredible life for herself. And I'm sure she has her moments. But to wear one's grief, like, to wear it like it's a, a you know, an Eve Celeron handbag, I don't, it's not an accessory. I think is what I'm trying to say. So how do I feel about that? I feel as though you need to absorb it, feel it, live it a bit, and then do your best to rise above. Sure. Having said that, I don't want to die. I don't like the idea of dying because having seen that, it's not pretty, and I don't want to do it. I'd rather just get dead. And especially now that you have children. I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to die. Know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I imagine you don't want them to go through with you what you went no. through with your parents. No, 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 I don't. I would just rather be hit by a bus. <laughs> sure. I would. I just, I don't want the other thing. It's almost, it's it's like it makes me, it makes me kind of like have a stomachache to even think about that because I don't, that is the one thing that I think is ingrained in me is the things that I saw with my father, the indignity of it and his inability to communicate and the knowledge that he knew he was dying but had no way out of it. That, to me, is just too horrific. So I would just rather walk outside and, you know, be run down. Or like a nice little heart attack in the middle of sex. <laughs> Shopping for lip gloss. Bump done. And there she goes. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> you know what I mean. I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> 
<laughs> so what's coming down the pike for Alicia Coppola? I know you've got a spot on Teen Wolf coming up. Uh, anything else? Yeah, I do. I'm pretty excited about that. I'm pretty excited about the Teen Wolf thing. People really love the show. I like it. I think it's a you fun know, show. You know, it's so funny. I, I I haven't watched the show, but I follow a million people on Twitter, and whenever Teen Wolf comes on on Monday nights, Twitter shut my Twitter feed shuts down, and everybody just talks about Teen Wolf. It's true. They all talk about Teen Wolf. I love that. People love the show. I have a Twitter. Apparently, my character, Talia Hale, now has a Twitter account. Oh, okay, very nice. And I, I didn't do it. And the character hasn't even aired yet. And is it based on the movie, or is it not really have anything to do with the old oh, Michael no, J. Fox? Oh, no. Oh, God, no. No, you okay. must watch this show. Okay. Let me tell you something, my friend. <laughs> Educate it me, my is, These people are gorgeous. <laughs> these, I mean, literally, I, was looking, I didn't know who to look at first. The boys on this show, they're like, I don't know, from 21 to maybe 28 years old, and holy crab cakes. They are phenomenal looking. It's like, (laughs) I asked the executives, like, what do you do? Do you, like, scour the universe for the most beautiful specimens? No, because it's, it's MTV. All... You know, they have a factory somewhere that they just manufacture these people. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Is there like a QVC <laughs> for MTV <laughs> where they buy the beautiful boys? Yeah. <laughs> so, And the girls are not too shabby either. Yeah. I mean, they're absolutely beautiful. So I'm on this set, and I play one the handsome boy. His name is Tyler Hecklin, and his character's name is Derek Hale, and he's the alpha werewolf. So it's kind of like, okay, you remember Romeo and Juliet? Sure. That's what it is. It's okay. the wolves, the alphas against the argents. And the one wolf, the guy, is in love with the argent daughter. So they're having a love affair. And everything tries to come in between them. Sure. And there is the one alpha wolf who is Derek Hale. And everybody wants to know a little bit more about Derek, where he comes from, why he is the way that he is. Now, let me tell you right now, let me just preface this by saying I kind of know what I'm talking about only a tiny bit. So don't quote me. Sure. So there's this flashback episode that's coming up where I play his mother, the queen and the alpha of all alphas of wolves. Wow. And it's told in flashback. So I am playing young Derek Hale's mother. So they hired a boy who looks just like Tyler, but he's 15. Because wow. I am clearly too young and gorgeous to have a 28-year-old son, <laughs> or however old he is, it's just not going to happen. And so, could I this turn into a recurring role for you, or is this just a one-off? I'm not sure what the plans are. I don't know. I don't know. But I did it, and it was fun, and it brought me back to my home network of MTV because that's where sure. I started my career on remote control. Sure. Absolutely. I like MTV. I think they're a fun network, and I had a blast. So that's what I'm doing there, and hopefully something else wonderful will come down the pike. And any more books on the horizon, or or is your writing career one and done? No, 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 I'm not one and done. This is my first one, and I have a couple more, like on the runway, you know how planes line up. So I have another one, which is called Tales from the Crib, and that's pretty much almost like a group effort of how moms become moms. Like how did we get here? You know, like I said before, you know, 22 years ago, I thought I'd be Felicia Gallant. Yes. <laughs> and and now this is where I am now. It's just, it's very interesting to me. You know, I remember talking to a woman when we were at preschool one day, and she used to book bands for the House of Blues. She was like, I was fabulous. I was, you know, I was booking bands. I was, you know, hanging out with all the rock stars, and now I book a play date. 
And I find that statement really interesting. I used to book bands, now I book play dates. And there's a lot in between that we don't know about. I want to know sure. the in between. I sure. want to know how you got from booking bands to House of Blues to booking a play date. I want to know how, you know, moms go from, you know, I don't know, teetering Manhattan in high chimney chews a la Sex in the City and Carrie Bradshaw to, you know, like the other day, I had two different shoes on and I didn't even know to drop my kids off at school. Brandon, two different shoes on, two different ones. How does that happen? You want to know how it happens? Because I don't sleep. I have three children. I have two careers. And I'm running around like a chicken without a head. And then my next book after that one, I think, will be possibly a book on essays. And then there's another subject I'm going to tackle, which I had terrible postpartum depression after Greta was born. And so I think I'm going to start that. Wow. And there you have it. Sounds like a busy couple of years for you. Yeah, well, i got to keep busy. Clearly, I just I don't have enough to do, and I need to do it. Also, it keeps me in my room at my little desk, not out there in the general population where there's, you know, vaginas to be wiped and gum to be gotten out of hair. So I'm glad. <laughs> I'll tell you something. This woman, uh, you know, I, I can't thank Alicia Coppola enough for stopping in here and for gracing us, pun absolutely intended, with the hard-won wisdom of her own experience. One more time, in case you missed it, the book is called Gracefully Gone. It is a hell of a read, and right now you can find it at two places online, Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, it's available now, and trust me when I tell you, I know I'm biased because I love her and have forever, but this book is well worth the toil. Uh, incidentally, Alicia is on Twitter. She's currently tweeting up a storm in support of this brilliant book, and you can find her at, at Alicia underscore Coppola. Uh, and that's two P's and one L in case you need a spell check on that name. As for me, that's it, guys. Episode 93 of Brandon's Buzz in the can. If you're already listening to the show, you clearly know how to find it. But in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz is home base for this show. From there, you can see what's coming on the show, what is on the show, what has been on the show. You can uh, leave comments. You can send emails to me. It really is home base. Mission Control for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. Uh, there at the top of any page of brandonsbuzz.com is a blue button marked radio. You click that. That takes you to a full radio archive. Every episode of this show uh, is in that archive. This is episode number 93. As I said, this and all previous 92 episodes of Brandon's Buzz available in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. You can also find me at iTunes, guys. I'm on iTunes. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on my logo. It's the Puzzle Piece logo. Uh, from there, it, it takes you to a full, again, every episode is there. And you can either subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library when they show up in the, in the, uh, in the music store. Or you can uh, pick and choose and download individual episodes, old episodes of the show, as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing. Uh, so listen, I'm all over the, I'm on iTunes, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and I assure you something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as always, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and I sure hope you continue finding and listening 
to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check it hey out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. <laughs> 